back for session 38 in Systematic Theology, and we're continuing with the doctrines surrounding our redemption from sin. And we previously covered Christ's accomplishment of our redemption at the cross as he obeyed the law perfectly on our behalf during his earthly walk, and we call that his act of obedience. Then he obeyed perfectly in his work of going to the cross and enduring the wrath that was due to us because of our sin, and we call this obedience his passive obedience. Then we began looking at how the work of Christ, all that is included in redemption, is applied to us, the application of redemption. And we began last time with an introduction to the Ordo Salutis, or the order of salvation. When redemption is applied to one of the elect, the benefits of election are applied in a logical order. Certain benefits have to logically come first before other benefits are applied. And once again, in your notes, we have a list of the ordo, which we started with last time. And uh, different theologians differ a little bit how they present this order. Now, this list comes from the modern theologian Robert L. Raymond. And it reads, um, and I I added step zero to uh, Robert Raymond's uh, order here. Step zero being election. We've covered that. And then... Effectual call, regeneration, repentance unto life, faith in Jesus Christ, justification, definitive sanctification, adoption, progressive sanctification, and perseverance in holiness. So Robert Raymond, he groups the benefits of redemption like this in order to show the logical order in which they're applied to us. And that's what we see in the numbering one, two, three, and 4. But Raymond also wants us to recognize that certain benefits are kind of grouped together. They're associated with each other. And that's why the list shows numbering like 4A and 4B. And that way we can see that, for instance, that progressive sanctification and perseverance and holiness are associated with each other. Those two steps happen in parallel with each other throughout our Christian lives as we go forward. In the course of our Christian lives, God is sanctifying us making us progressively more Christ-like. And in parallel with that, he is ensuring that we persevere in the faith. And like I mentioned, one place where I uh, departed from Robert Raymond's list in the Ordo is that I added step zero. Step zero is what we looked at last time, the fact that God the Father elected and predestined certain individuals by name to give to the Son as his sheep. Those who are predestined to make up Christ's church, his bride, were elected by God before he created all things. Then, in time in history, where we are now, Christ accomplished redemption for the elect. Then, in time in history, the Holy Spirit is applying redemption to Christ's sheep. So tonight, we're going to move forward in the Ordo from what took place in eternity past, and that is election, to how redemption is applied in time in history how we experience it. And our Christian lives begin with steps 1A and 1B in that ordo, the effectual call and regeneration. Steps 1A and 1B, the effectual call and regeneration are associated with each other. The call to salvation from God to the elect sinner results in the new birth. That's regeneration. What is this call, and why do we apply this term effectual to the call? Now, Scripture tells us of two different kinds of calls from God to sinners. The first kind of call is universal. It's a call of the preaching of the gospel. 
This call is good news of the accomplishment of Christ, and we, the church, are commanded to preach it to all without distinguishing. We're going to turn, first of all, to the book of Romans, chapter 10. We'll read verses 8 to 17. Romans 10, verses 8 to 17. In this section, Paul is declaring that if we seek to be declared righteous by our own personal law-keeping, trying to establish our own righteousness, we're going to utterly fail. But instead, we are to seek the righteousness that God credits to us through faith. Paul then describes this process of faith. And, it begin, and how it begins that with the general call of the gospel. That's sort of like step one. Romans 10, starting in verse 8. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified. And with the mouth, one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from Hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. What is the gospel? You have this definition in your notes. The gospel is that specific announcement of redemption from sin and death in Jesus Christ, promised and fulfilled in history. The gospel is that specific announcement of redemption from sin and death in Jesus Christ, promised and fulfilled in history. It's historically based. It's based on real events in history. None of it is theoretical. It really happened. And it's an announcement. It's an announcement. The gospel is an authoritative announcement with the authority of God himself. And with that announcement comes a command embedded in the announcement. This is a royal announcement from God himself being proclaimed by the church, along with that good news. And it's the best possible news. There is an embedded command for the only appropriate response. This appropriate response is that we must obey in order to benefit from the good news. What is that obedience? The command is to believe, to believe the gospel. Let's turn to the Gospel of John, chapter 6. I'll read verses 28 and 29. This is the passage where Jesus had fed the 5,000, and the next day the crowds followed him expecting more bread. And Jesus is about to tell the crowds that he is the bread of life. But first, he tells them not to work for food that perishes. The crowds then ask Jesus, 
about the works they should be doing. Gospel of John, chapter 6, starting in verse 28. Then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. The crowds asked Jesus, What must we do to be doing the works of God? Crowds asked him a question from a legal point of view. They asked what works they must do in order to fully do the works of God. What are the works that we are to do by our own efforts to please God? Jesus responds in the next verse, verse 29. By first, he turns the plural works into the singular work. Jesus' audience, they had in mind keeping many works of the law in order to please God. And Jesus turns this around. Jesus turns the plural word works into just a singular work. Since salvation is a gift, only one thing is required. That one thing is that they believe in him whom God has sent. This, there is a gospel announcement and a command embedded in the gospel. That work of God in order to be saved, it's not to do the 613 laws of the Old Testament perfectly. Christ has already done that on our behalf. The gospel command is simply to believe in him who he has sent. I like what Spurgeon preached about the command of God that is embedded in the gospel. And here is part of what he said. It was a brave saying of Martin Luther's when he said, I would run into Christ's arms even if he had a drawn sword in his hand. Now, he has not a drawn sword, but he has his wounds in his hands. Run into his arms, poor sinner. Oh, you say, may I come? How can you ask the question? You are commanded to come. The great command of the gospel is believe on the Lord Jesus. Those who disobey this command disobey God. It is as much a command of God that man should believe on Christ as that we should love our neighbor. The gospel has an embedded imperative to obey the gospel. That obedience is to believe in him whom the Father has sent. And one place we can find the imperative to believe the gospel is in John chapter 16, which is where I'll be next. John 16, verses 7 to 11. In this passage in John, Jesus is speaking of his physical departure from this world in the ascension. But the ascension is not abandonment. The ascension is not abandonment. The disciples would not simply be abandoned. And in fact, there was advantage in the ascension because Christ would send the Holy Spirit to them. If you'd like to follow along, once again, I'll be in John 16, verses 7 to 11. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. This passage is unusual because the scriptures 
usually speak of the Holy Spirit's work in believers, but here it speaks of the Holy Spirit's work in the world at large. That work is judicial. That work is to convict the world. The way to see this passage is that Jesus, during his earthly walk, when he was physically present, had an effect on the world by his actions and words. He exposed sin by confronting darkness with light. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 11 to 14, speak of this effect of the light when it says this. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible for anything that becomes visible is light. So we have here moral light. The moral light exposes works of darkness for what they really are. The physical presence of Jesus when he was here on earth, his words and his actions exposed works of darkness with light. Jesus also in his earthly walk when he was physically present here also convicted the world concerning righteousness. He exposed the false righteousness of the Pharisees, for example. And then finally, Jesus, in his physical earthly ministry, when he was physically here, convicted the world concerning judgment. You know, the Jewish leaders of the time judged by mere appearances. They looked at just the outward stuff. They didn't judge by righteous judgment. One place where we see Jesus in his physical presence speaking of the difference between judgment by appearances and righteous judgment is in the Gospel of John, chapter 7, verses 23 and 24. In this passage, Jesus had healed a man on the Sabbath, and that led to accusations of a violation of the Sabbath law. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. So Jesus, during his earthly walk, while he was physically present on earth, convicted the world by exposing works of darkness for what they are, by showing what true righteousness is, and by showing what true judgment is. How does this relate to John chapter 16, where Jesus is comforting the disciples with the promise of the Holy Spirit that ascension does not mean abandonment. It means that even though Jesus will be physically in heaven, the Holy Spirit will continue the work of convicting the world that Jesus did in his earthly walk. The Holy Spirit does this convicting work by the scriptures, by the preaching of the gospel, and through us, through Christians. Our words and our behavior convict the world in the sense of exposing its true state of darkness. In our words and behavior, the Holy Spirit is exposing the world's sin, the world's false righteousness, and the world's perverse judgments. Now that we have some background on the passage in John 16, let's relate it to the sin of unbelief in the announcement of the gospel the sin of unbelief. The gospel is an announcement of good news, the good news of the finished work of Christ with the offer of forgiveness of sins. This is a royal announcement commanded by the king of kings. 
It comes with an embedded command, an imperative to believe the gospel and call upon the Lord for salvation. Now in John 16, 9, it says that the Holy Spirit will convict the world concerning sin because they do not believe in me. Jesus is here linking sin with unbelief in the gospel. The Holy Spirit is even now, in a judicial sense, convicting the world, exposing the sin of the world in their sin of unbelief. Not only is rejection of the gospel, unbelief in the gospel, a sin, but it is, in a sense, the central sin. Unbelief is a willful disregard of a person's dire need for forgiveness. Unbelief results in the world's inability to receive spiritual life. Willful and persistent unbelief until a person dies delivers that soul to eternal punishment. Unbelief is not morally neutral. Unbelief in the face of the gospel is sinful unbelief. The Holy Spirit, even now, is exposing the world's sin of unbelief in the royal announcement of the gospel. If anyone is to be saved, the universal call of the gospel is critical. The preaching of the gospel is God's chosen means of proclaiming salvation to the human race. In Romans chapter 10, which is where I'll be next, Paul writes the way of salvation is not being by personal, perfect law-keeping, but by faith in the gospel. And then in verses 13 to 17 of Romans 10, verses 13 to 17, he emphasizes the importance of the preaching of the gospel, this universal call to the whole world. Paul lays out the need to proclaim the gospel in logical steps. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. First in verse 13, Paul states the gospel promise of God. Everyone who calls on the name of the, of the Lord will be saved. The gospel promise. Then he goes on in verse 14 to show that people must believe in the name and work of Christ before they can call upon him for salvation. But they cannot believe in good news that they've never heard. If they haven't heard of the person and finished work of Christ, they cannot believe. And they cannot call upon him for salvation. Someone must preach or announce the person and work of Christ and the free offer of salvation for those who believe. But before the preacher can go forth and announce, he must be sent. The general call of God to salvation, or what could be called a universal call, is the preaching of the gospel to all of creation, to every person. The message of the call of the gospel is necessary for salvation. But in order for a person to benefit from that call of the gospel, the good news that's announced, the person must believe the message. The message must be mixed with faith in order for a person to benefit from the good news. We'll turn next to Hebrews chapter 4. 
to see this principle. As chapter 4 to this letter to the Hebrews begins, Paul, who I believe to be the author of Hebrews, is giving a warning to the Hebrew Christians who are receiving the letter. The Hebrew Christians were under persecution, and they were being tempted to renounce Christ and to go back to Judaism and to try to keep the law in order to earn salvation. Hebrews chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them. But the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest. As he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. So in this whole section here, Paul's making a comparison. He's making a comparison between the Israelites in the wilderness who failed to enter the promised land and the Hebrew Christians he was writing to. Most of the Israelites in the wilderness failed to enter the promised land and gain the promise of rest because of their unbelief. Verse 2 says that good news came to them. God had given them a promise of rest in the promised land, but they did not enter because of their unbelief in that message of good news. That message of rest, that good news, did not benefit them because they refused to believe it. The Israelites in the wilderness received good news that God would take them from the hard labor of being slaves in Egypt, then take them from the difficulties of the wilderness to a land of rest from these things. But you may remember the account in Numbers chapters 13 and 14 when the spies came back from their reconnaissance of the promised land. They started with a good report of the plentiful fruit of the land. But there was a difficulty as well. The inhabitants of the land were powerful. What started as a good report from the spies quickly became bad news. News coming from a position of sinful unbelief. Once they saw the inhabitants of the land, they could not believe the good news any longer. The rest of the people followed their example of sinful unbelief and desired to go back to Egypt. And God then revealed his righteous wrath against their sinful unbelief. Because Moses did intercede for them, God did not kill them on the spot. But in righteous wrath, God swore that those guilty of sinful unbelief would not enter this rest that was promised by the good news. Of that generation, only Joshua and Caleb, the two who exhibited faith in God's promise, were able to enter the promised land. And Paul is explaining in Hebrews that the episode of the Israelites who didn't benefit from God's good news, it's a warning to us today. In Hebrews chapter 4, verse 2, Paul warns them, For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them, because they were not united by faith with those who listened. The good news by itself wasn't the only thing necessary for benefit. Those who heard had to believe. The promise had to be combined with faith in the promise to receive the benefit. What is that benefit? For the Israelites and the Hebrew Christians and us here tonight, the benefit is rest. That rest is the rest of salvation. 
The rest of salvation is resting in the benefit of what Christ has already accomplished for us. If you look forward a few verses in our place in Hebrews, at verse 10, it says this. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. When we believe the gospel, when the good news of Christ's finished work is mixed with faith in that promise, we enjoy rest from our own works. The Hebrew Christians wanted to go back to the never-ending work of Judaism. If they fell from faith in the promise, this never-ending work of trying to keep the law would not benefit them. But if they had faith in the promise, they would enter into rest. They would have rest from trying to earn salvation from their own works of the law. They would have rest from slavery to the taskmaster of sin. They would rest in what Christ has provided. And they would have rest for eternity, the everlasting Sabbath of the new heavens and the new earth. This goes to show that the good news of the gospel, the gospel that we're commanded to proclaim to all of creation, to everyone, comes with an embedded command. Hearing the gospel places a person under a responsibility to respond. The commanded response is to believe the message, to believe the promise. Scripture shows that when people do not believe what God has proclaimed, this isn't just a, a morally neutral act. Most people, when they hear the gospel, they'll just respond with, well, whatever floats your boat, and then go on with their lives as if they never heard the good news. Others may react by being antagonistic toward the good news. Unbelief is not morally neutral. It's not like when little kids believe in the Easter Bunny, then one day they no longer believe in the Easter Bunny. Well, that's morally neutral. It's part of growing up. It's part of abandoning childish things. But unbelief in God's universal message of salvation, the gospel, is not a neutral matter. We'll turn next to Hebrews chapter 10, where we'll see another warning to the Hebrew Christians who are in danger of renouncing the gospel and turning back to Judaism and their own works. We'll be in verse 26 of chapter 10. And as we approach verse 26, Paul is encouraging the Hebrew Christians to hold fast the confession of our hope. They must continue to believe the promise announced in the gospel. Then in verses 26 to 31, there is a solemn warning against sinful unbelief. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. The Hebrew Christians had already heard the gospel 
And they exhibited outward signs of faith in God's promise. Verse 26 says that they had received knowledge of the truth. The danger was that they would sin deliberately. They would sin with a high hand by renouncing the promise. Once they renounced the promise, all that remained for them would be judgment. There was not a plan B. Judaism said there were other sacrifices that would take care of their sins, animal sacrifices. Paul is saying there is no longer any other sacrifice for sin remaining. They are confronted with the most important choice they will ever make. Believe the promise of the gospel or fall into what verse 27 calls a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Renouncing the promise of the gospel would put them into the category of adversaries. Those who hear the gospel and disregard the command to believe the gospel and continue in that disregard until they die are at the final day counted as adversaries. Why? The passages themselves give us the reasons. First, they have rejected the person of Christ. They have trampled underfoot the Son of God. The Hebrew Christians had heard of the benefit already purchased for them by the obedience and suffering of the Son of God. They were in danger of disregarding the divine person of the Son of God in favor of their own false path of salvation. They have rejected the work of Christ. They have profaned the blood of the covenant. They had heard of the gracious promise, a promise secured with the very blood of Christ. And now they were in danger of profaning that blood or making that blood a common thing rather than a holy thing. The preciousness of the blood of Christ is proclaimed in so many places in Scripture, but there's one example I want to call attention to, and that's in the book of Acts, chapter 20, verse 28. Paul is giving his farewell address to the Ephesian elders here. This is part of his command to the Ephesian elders. Acts 20, 28. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. That's how precious the blood of Christ is. Christ won his church. Christ won his bride with his own blood. His blood is not common blood. The Hebrew Christians already knew this or should have known. But they were in danger of making Christ's blood a common thing by disregarding the reason that Christ shed his precious blood. Finally, the Hebrew Christians were in danger of rejecting the person of the Holy Spirit. They were in danger of insulting and outraging the Spirit of God. The person of the Holy Spirit brought them the promise of the grace of the gospel by working in the people who brought them the gospel, the messengers of the gospel. I'll read from 1 John chapter 4 next. Here, John gives us a doctrinal test to reveal which teachers are truly sent by the Holy Spirit. I'll read from 1 John chapter 4, verses 1 to 3. Beloved, do not believe every spirit 
But test the spirits to see whether they are from God, for many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming, and now is in the world already. The test was whether a teacher was sent from the Holy Spirit, and the test was a doctrinal test. In this case, the test was whether the teacher proclaims that Christ has come in the flesh. The person of the Holy Spirit graciously brings the light of the gospel by guiding the one who is bringing the message. If a person at first appears to receive the message of salvation, then rejects the work of Christ, he's repudiated the gracious work of the Holy Spirit in bringing the message of grace. In the case of an apostate, one who has fallen from the faith, he has, in effect, insulted the Holy Spirit. An apostate has no excuse because he knows better. But this can be applied, at least to some extent, to people who have heard the gospel and in the high-handed sin of unbelief refuse to believe and remain obstinate in that unbelief to the very end. So, unbelief in the face of the clear presentation of the divine, royal announcement of gospel grace, it's not a neutral unbelief. It's not just a case of whatever floats your boat. Ongoing unbelief in the gospel is a willful sin. Why do people reject the gospel? One reason is that people prefer idols to the true God. They prefer their idols. If you'd like to follow along, I'll read next from 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 21 to 24. In here, Paul names two idols that people of the world seek. For since... In the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs, and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. The theologian Gordon Fee wrote an insightful commentary on this passage. He said that the Jews and Greeks that Paul points out are examples of the two great idolatries of humanity. The two great idolatries of humanity. The Jews wanted to see displays of power, but power exercised in what they saw as their own interest. The Greeks wanted to see wisdom, but wisdom like their own. Both the Jews and Greeks who rejected the gospel disregarded it because they wanted a God that made sense to them. That's the essence of idolatry. Men construct idols that make sense to them. Their idols reflect how the God who makes sense ought to do things. The Jews demanded that Jesus show them signs. 
It's not that Jesus didn't show signs. He did many miracles. But the Jews wanted miracles that would cast off the rule of the Romans and prove Jesus to be the deliverer from the Romans that they expected. The Greeks demanded worldly wisdom. When Paul went to the Areopagus in Athens, Scripture describes the Greeks there as spending their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. They idolized worldly wisdom. But they were only interested in so-called wisdom that fit their own notions of wisdom. Their idol was an idol that made sense to them, an idol that reflected how a God who makes sense ought to do things. Here's what the men of Athens, at the center of philosophy, the Areopagus, said in reaction to Paul. And I'll read their reaction from the book of Acts, chapter 17, verses 30 to 32. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. But others said, we will hear you again about this. The philosophers of Athens, the ones who were always telling or hearing, something new. We're hearing something new to them. The new message was of the resurrection of Christ and of the resurrection of the dead, and the reaction was mixed. Some wanted to hear more, and some just mocked. Paul's words were just a big joke to them, and they showed their contempt for any wisdom other than their own notions. The Greeks sought wisdom, but not the true wisdom of God. They had their own notions of how a God's wisdom should look. And in their opinion, that wisdom shouldn't involve resurrection from the dead. That's what the theologian Gordon Fee called the two great idolatries of mankind. Power and wisdom. Power and wisdom. But what we saw in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 a few minutes ago shows us that what the world seeks in those two idols is actually fulfilled in the gospel. For those who believe the gospel, 1 Corinthians 1.24 says that Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. Before I was saved, I heard the gospel more than once. To my shame, I was among those who thought of the gospel as something to mock. I, too, worship my own idols wasn't until the Holy Spirit intervened in my life and thinking by the new birth that my mind changed completely. I went from seeing these twin idols of worldly power and worldly wisdom as being worthy of worship to seeing the gospel as the power of God and the wisdom of God. What accounts for this change? If you'd like to follow along, I'll read next from 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14. This verse explains why I didn't respond properly to the gospel the first time I heard it. 1 Corinthians 2.14 The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, 
and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. In my natural, sinful state, I couldn't accept the things of the Spirit of God. The gospel was being proclaimed in the world by the power of the Spirit, but I chose not to accept it in my natural, unspiritual state. Why? Verse 14 gives two reasons. In my natural, unspiritual state, I could not understand spiritual things. Therefore, it was also much folly in my mind. Way back in 2019, session number two, when we looked at the doctrine of God's revelation, we studied what theologians call the noetic effects of sin. The noetic effects of sin means that in an unsaved person, sin affects their thinking. The word noetic means having to do with our mental activity. Our intellect, how we think, is affected by sin. Sin hasn't completely stripped us of reason, but it has made us foolish in our thinking. Because we are born foolish and stay foolish if God does not change us by the new birth, the unsaved person has reason, but sin clouds their reason. But one day, something happened to me. And the only way I can describe it is that it suddenly dawned on me that the gospel is true and I must believe it. I'll read again from where we were a few minutes ago in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 22 to 24, which describes the change with one word. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. The change in my thinking is described with one word in this passage. The word is called. But to those who are called. And this calling, it can't be the universal call of the gospel alone. Because if it only meant the universal call of the gospel alone, then everyone who hears the gospel would have their thinking changed, their heart changed, and they would be saved. This call in verse 24 must be a different call than the widespread call of the gospel. There is the universal call of the gospel, the announcement of grace based on the work of Christ, and then there is another call, and there is a term for that, the effectual call. The proclaiming of the gospel, it's an external call. It happens outside of us. The effectual call is God's gracious work in an elect person, that he works inwardly, together with the external call of the gospel when that person is born again. We've come to the end of our time tonight a little bit early, but what we'll do next time is look at the doctrine of the effectual call and its place in the Ordo Salutis.